Hello and a very warm welcome to the Being Fine chat. I'm very thrilled to be here tonight. My name is Jo Baldwin-Trot, editor and publisher of Being Fine. Um, if you can hear my dog, that's little Nala. She is out in the garden, but she has a very loud bark. <laughs> so I'm really thrilled to be here tonight with one of our new authors who will be in our second edition of this amazing book, Being Fine. There we go, caught the, caught the light. Being Fine, the other F word. Um, all the way from Hawaii, we have Robert Gore. Good evening, Robert. Good evening. I'm glad to be here. Oh, thank you very much for joining me. Thank Actually, you for sorry, inviting me. Thank you. I should say good morning because it's it's pretty much 9 a.m. in Hawaii. Is the sun yes. shining, Robert? Can you give us? Is it? It's raining and quite uh, quite a lot of rain, quite a lot of flash floods, and the waterfalls are everywhere. There's hundreds in the Kulau Mountains that are flowing down the sides of the mountains. So it's quite spectacular right now. Wow! Wow! It sounds amazing. I haven't visited, but you're definitely on my list. I'm I'm really, uh, planning to come and visit you and Kumu Brenda at some point. So um, thank you very much for joining tonight. It's really exciting to be able to uh, chat to you. Uh, we, last week, uh, week four last, sorry, I, I spoke to Perry Power. Uh, you're both two new authors that will be in the second edition of this book. Um, so this book felt very timely to get out as soon as possible because of the situation right now. Um, and yourself, Perry, and there's about three others, Teresa Corso, obviously, uh, someone you know very well, yes. uh, are all going to be in the um, the second edition. So very grateful to Teresa, who kindly um, connected us. And uh, she actually, well, how this happened in a way was I saw your interview on her podcast, The Thread, which I highly recommend watching. Um, and you did the most beautiful interview that I, I honestly say, I can't remember the last time I watched uh, anything online that, you know, that was like that for the whole 90 minutes. I couldn't tear myself away. Um, and it was your beautiful love story and your story of yourself and your um, partner, your twin flame, Kumu Brenda. That yes. was just amazing. Oh, so um, so yeah, I was, I was so touched by that story. And obviously tonight we're gonna be talking about you um, and your story. Um, but just to give, you, give uh, the viewers and the listeners a little background, so you are now retired, although you're busy, <laughs> not, not very quietly retired, you're doing lots of things. You're a retired obstetrician and gynecologist. Uh, you were based in Seattle for many, many years, um, 35, if I've written that down right. Yes. Um, and you originally, you came to Hawaii at the age of eight, you left at graduation, um, and then you, because of your relationship with Kimi Brenda, you were childhood sweets of hearts and then you went your separate ways. Just remarkable story. Um, and then obviously uh, in 2011, you and Kimi Brenda got together or just before that and you got married on the 11th of November, 2011, yes. is that right? Yes. Or the 11th? 11 a.m. <laughs> 11 a.m. too. <laughs> just, just amazing. So, uh, I, mean, I mean, there is a whole story within itself there. Um, so, and I'd love to come on what, to what you're doing now, but we'll come on to that a bit later on. So firstly, thank you for coming into the book, Robert. And, and what drew you to being fine? I understood that uh, the whole concept was extremely important to men. 
although I spent my whole career working with women, I also, by uh, the same situation of seeing a lot of women, I saw a lot of men with them and I saw a lot of interaction. And I could ask the woman what's wrong and I would find out very quickly what's wrong. Ask the husband how it's going, oh, it's fine. And from my own personal experience, I knew this is, this is a huge lie. This is a huge lie. And I don't know if I have the time and I wanna expend the effort to find out what's going on here. But it was also true of my life. I told most people I'm fine when I was not. And I spent many, many years not being fine and lying. At times I thought it was like a chameleon and I just put on this color that was appropriate for the situation. But if no, if anybody really knew me, that would not be a good thing to, to have happen. And so I had to keep out this, this image, this concept of who I was, but I was not fine in any sense of the word. And so when I found the book and found that many men have many stories that are similar yet extremely different, we're so diverse in what brings us to the point that we're at now. And the journey for each of us is a different journey. It's not the same for any one person. What works for me might not work for anyone else. Uh, what works for them might not work for me. But it all starts with being honest. It starts with being true to ourselves and it starts with going inward. So that's what really attracted me and um, re renewed a desire to deal with some of my own issues again in a way that I've not for a long time. So as I've worked on my part of this book, I'm going through some similar things as to what the book describes as when I originally arrived at this point. So it's a, it's a great journey and I appreciate the chance to participate, the opportunity to participate and the friendships that we're developing. So thank you for having me and for asking about my story. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's a total pleasure. And Oh, sorry, a bit, a bit of feedback there. Um, so it, it's just wonderful how this this second that sort of the, the bigger version of this book will will come out soon. Um, and we really, I always envisaged and hoped that I, it would be stories from men of all ages. It was very much part of my intention and the message that I received to create a book for men across all ages. And so I'm very thrilled that um, you know Perry Power is 23. Um, I think you're a little bit older than that, Robert. Um, but we don't need we don't need numbers because they're just numbers. But um, and, and I was obviously very thrilled because you've never shared your story before, which is inc which is incredible in itself. So I I feel um, as I have done with you know some of the other authors who've never shared their story before, incredibly grateful to you because you know we know how painful that is. I know how painful that is and how how much of a challenge that can be. Um, so, um, and already some of the authors are already in the version one are getting a whole different relationship system with their ex-partners, with their current partners, with their families. It really does. Um, it's opening in a nice way, the can of worms. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so what's, what has happened for you and what, what happened that, that you really wanted to um, really start talking about it because obviously it's you know, it's not an easy thing to do. Well, the story, as everyone's, is is a long one. Uh, but when I look back on my my journey, it really goes back to about uh, fifteen years ago, when I had reached a point where I did not think that I could continue to go on living a life 
a pretense and acting and being fine when I was not. I was depressed. I was unhappy with most of my life. I was unsatisfied. And I was seeing a therapist, uh, plus a mentor friend of mine who had written a lot in this area. And at the time that I was working with them, they had developed something called the intensive. It was a journey inward and uh, it involved a 21 day silent retreat with quite severe restrictions. Now I knew these two people extremely well. I would never have done this with a lot of people because it's, it's not an easy thing to do and it can be a dangerous thing to do because in the same techniques that we were being used for my journey, or some of the techniques that were used to deprogram people, to psychologically abuse people. So you're very vulnerable when you go through a process like this. But I reached a point where this is what I wanted to do. I wanted this time of discovery. And so I spent, I spent three weeks doing this. And out of that came a huge transition in my life. Uh, the reason I think that I really was there was the concept that I'd had since a childhood that although it looks like I'm a great person, it looks like I'm doing really well. If you really knew me, that's not who I am. I'm not that person you're seeing. And it even went so deep as to say, if you really knew me, there's no way you could love me because I have too much guilt, too much shame, too much thing, too many things that I'm unhappy about that if I reveal those to you, you wouldn't love me. So what do I do when that happens? When love approaches, I create an environment in which the person turns against me because they can't take what's happening. And they let me know they don't find me lovable. And that just validates exactly what I thought about myself. I'm not lovable. And so you just validated it. Thank you very much. It's true. Now, the reason I felt that way is what will be in this book. And I will go into great depth about why I came to a point where I felt this way about myself. My own belief is that we're born as a child with an inner light, with a peace, with an understanding of, of correctness, with an understanding that life is can be and should be joyful, that there are good things to have in life, and that we're blessed to be here. But by the age of four, five, six, there's another voice that's speaking to us is telling us entirely different things about our life, things that are not true. And it was out of those kind of lies that I heard, especially from parents and from those that were close to us, that led me to this idea that if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. And if you love me, I'm gonna make sure that you don't eventually. So I validate for myself once again. And it's my belief about our psyche, and I'm, I'm changing my feelings all the time. So what I say today may not be true for me tomorrow. And what I said 10 years ago is not true for me now. And that's okay. Change is welcome. Change is necessary and it's important. But I really believe that most decisions, almost all decisions that most of us make in our daily lives are made in the subconscious. And we only use the rational mind to justify our decision. And when I try to understand a lot of what I see in the world, it only makes sense to me if that's what's happening. If people are taking a non-rational decision-making process that's coming from the whole milieu of the psyche and then believing that and then trying to justify that belief by building a set of circumstances that sound rational to defend the lie. 
But if you have the wrong answer to the right question, it's always the wrong answer. And that's what I find so many people have. A, they've got a good answer, but it's the wrong answer because the question was wrong. So my desire is to ask the right questions and to seek the truth by saying, what is the right question? And the right question for me is, why do I feel this way? Do I have to continue to feel this way? And is there another way to be? And if there's another way to be, that's what I really want. If there's no other way to be, then I don't know that this is a good place to stay. So it was that dark that it was, answers were demanded. Um, and that's what led me to this intensive that we will be sharing in the book. Um, to help understand that a little bit, I think it's important to understand the situation that I grew up in as a young boy, where I was born and then lived until age eight, was in the deep south, the uh, so-called Bible Belt of the South United States. There was still prejudice. We still had separate restrooms. We still had separate drinking fountains, separate rides on buses, uh, separate waiting areas in the restaurants. Everything was segregated. So that's what I knew as a very young child. But I also knew this religious thing that was going on in the South, not unique to the South, but very prevalent, which is a concept that God was very angry, very mean, and really was out to destroy us. And that we could try to be good, but we could never be good enough to please him. And so we really were at a very, very big disadvantage. And the so-called savior, Jesus, came along and he was going to defend us against this angry father. So he was our buddy. But I didn't buy that. I, at age six, I was reading. My dad was actually a minister. He was at ministerial school and I was five. And by age six, I was reading some of his theology books. And I remember thinking, I don't believe any of this. This is not this cannot be true. This cannot be accurate that there is a God like that who put me here to punish me and who put me here to send me to hell if I'm bad. And I can't be good enough. So why try? But what I did learn was I could act like I, I, I can act like I'm good. I can act like this is all true for me. And I can be a chameleon on the wall. And maybe people won't notice me too much and I won't get in trouble. But I always had that angst. And you say, well, you outgrow that. What I say in the, in the chapter and what I would like to tell people is some of the things that are put in this child's mind at these kind of early ages never go out of the picture. They never really go away. They're deep. They're very, very deep. We're told things about ourselves that are not true. And we believe those lies. All the education in the world, and I had a lot of education, but I still dealt with these issues. And I can give you an example of how deeply this goes. I had a very dear friend who was a brilliant man. He was a writer, a builder, did all kind of wonderful things that we spent a lot of time together. We read a lot of books together, met together for breakfast frequently. He was at my home helping with something and he had some blood in his urine. The short story is that within three or four months, he was terminal with cancer of the bladder that had spread. And I went to see him very close to the end. And I had done the taxes for him because he didn't like doing income taxes and his income was quite minuscule. And I had done his taxes for him as a courtesy. And uh, one time he told me that he had done some work in this area he lived for some elderly people and they had paid him $20, $30 a person to do some work for him. And we didn't include it because it really would not have had an influence and it would have created a whole 
form for business and a lot of activity that we didn't want to get into. And as he was so ill, he said to me, Bob, he called me Bob. He says, Bob, do you think that not reporting that income tax that God is punishing me for that? And I started weeping because here was a man my age in his 70s who had facing death. And what was he wondering? He was wondering about this childhood God that said he would punish him if he lied, if he cheated. And the pain that that caused me personally to hear that became my pain also because I thought I'm the same way. I take some action sometimes and I still have that thought, do I think God will send me to hell for doing this? And you say, that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense to an adult. It makes sense to a little child that's hurting. And so that's a lot of what's in the things that I would like to be writing about is how those things influence us. And I don't want to go into all the details today, but to say that there are many, 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 and all of us share these kind of experiences. It can be any number of ways that we come to have these ideas, but they, they carry a lot of weight. I remember standing on the steps in Kaimaki, Hawaii, on the, my high school, senior year of high school, and I met a lady who was head of nursing at uh, the largest hospital in Honolulu. And she had her daughter visiting from the mainland, and she said to me, what do you want to do, Robbie? They call me Robbie at that time, and I said, I'm going to be a doctor because I had decided I was going to be a doctor at age six. So that was not something that really was a question in my mind. And the mother looked at me and said to the daughter, just looked at me and turned to the daughter and said, oh, I don't think he could do that. Now here's the head nurse at Queens Hospital who I thought I respected. But my response at that time deep down inside was whatever I do, I'm gonna show you that I can do this. It really motivated me because I was so angry at what she said because she didn't know me. How did she know I couldn't do this? But that was a simple little off the cuff statement by a mature woman in front of a, still a child that carried great weight. And I shared with my wife the other day as I've looked at a lot of these events, I thought they seem silly on the surface, but they're not, they're heavy. They're heavy crosses to bear and we have to get rid of them. And if a lot of people like me, they have created a barrier between the spirit, the soul, and the psyche, and the rational mind. And it's almost like a block of steel that separates the two. And if you try to take the elevator down to that space, it can't go through that steel. And somehow we have to get the fire hot enough, do something to get that block of steel out of the way and let those things flow that we're there to get out all the time. So, and again, and that's what's gonna be in the writing is how do we do that? What does it feel like? And what does it feel like to release the inner child, to let the inner child come forward and see the light of day, to see the forest, to see the flowers, to see the woodpeckers looking for food, just like I was searching in my soul for nourishment, to stand and watch all of these things. It's just fantastic. And so, when people asked me, was it worth going on that intensive? I said, I would do it again in a minute if I needed to, because it was so life-changing. Now, it's not for everybody. It is not the answer for everyone. But it is the approach of saying, I need to find an answer. I'm vulnerable. I'm open. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to find an answer, because I cannot continue to live this lie. 
I want fine to be fine. When I say I'm fine, I want to be fine. It does not mean that I dump every time somebody asks me, how are you doing? Because not everyone is there to help us. But our spirit will lead us to those who can help us. And we know when to say, I'm not fine. Do you have a minute? Can I talk to you? Can you call me? Can we have lunch? Let's do something to get this growing. And I'm so thankful for the people in my lives because there's been a steady stream. It's almost like a raging river, but every few miles, there's a little pool in the backwaters that's calm and still, and there was somebody there to help me negotiate the rest of the rapids. And I'm so grateful to those people that were there for me, and I wanna be one of the people that can be there for others. So that's the motivation. That's the reason for being here today, and that's the reason for this interview. Oh, thank you, Robert. That's a really lovely account, and um, you've covered so much there. You know, each each part of that could be a chapter in in your own book, which obviously um, you are going to write one day. Um, but you know, I, I think um, you've touched on so many issues that actually are that resonate with you know the the, the common threads in in some of the other chapters, and um, the inner child is such a such an important part of who we are um, and sadly i think you know for many many reasons and like you've already said there's the reasons are complex the reasons are different but for many reasons our, our inner child is is neglected uh, ignored uh, all the rest of it but unfortunately these messages um in fact i've just written a chapter for my next book which is about my religious um upbringing and not dissimilar to yours and and so you know, I fell out with God when I was kind of seven because I just didn't buy in it. It just didn't feel truthful. It all felt lies to me as well. But it it's all about that. It's just it sticks, doesn't it? This is the the, the tragic thing. It sticks and it stays within you. And the the naught to seven is is the key time, isn't it? We really absorb everything. Absolutely. We're just sponges. Yeah. We're just sponges. It just all goes in and. It, but we retain it. That's the thing. We absorb it. It doesn't get wrung out. And what you're talking about, science, it's almost wringing out that sponge and saying, well, hold on a minute. Um, and, and obviously your, part of your work now is about values and about our values and our beliefs and how that can impact our health and possibly immunity, which is just incredible and remarkable work. I'm really excited um, to hear that. Um, so, you know, I, I want to bring it back to what you're saying about the um, the questions, because one of our other authors, Mark Pitcher, he talks about the questions um, that you should ask and you shouldn't ask. And obviously, like I said, there's so much we could cover in, in this interview tonight. But I, I think it's a really lovely um, focus to, to sort of share with viewers and listeners about the questions we ask ourselves. And the questions you've asked yourself as a man, I'd love you just to go back over that because those questions really, they really landed with me. Um, and, and I think that's, that is, is a, very, a very big part and first important step, isn't it, to ask yourself those right questions if you're struggling. Yes, and the questions are different for everyone, but in some ways I think they're probably quite similar. Um, I, I think that all of these emotions that we experience, when they occur, serve us in a way that, that is purposeful. If we can ask ourselves, why do I feel this way? What's going on with, with me that I feel this way? Um, 
it can be rage in a car when somebody cuts in front and doesn't use the turn signal that almost causes an accident. And I feel this rage well up. Well, they don't know I'm angry and they they go in their life smiling down the road and and I'm fuming and almost getting an accident because I'm so upset. Why do I feel that way? And why does it come out that way? What is there in me that's so angry that this little thing of someone getting in front of me causes me to be angry? What is it that makes me feel unloved when somebody says they love me? What is it that makes me very uncomfortable when somebody said, you really did a good thing, you're really a bright boy, you're really a good person? And I think, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. Why do I feel that way? And I think as we ask those why questions, the answers will come, but they don't come easily. And they're sometimes painful. But once they come and once we have an answer, there's a lot of healing that occurs. So I encourage all of us to keep asking ourselves why, 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 what's going on, and then give permission to those that we trust to ask us the same questions. And I give my wife that permission to say, Robert, why did you get so upset at that person in line? What was going on with you that you felt that way? I'm not threatened by her asking me that. I'm, I'm happy that she does because I realized when I did it, and although I've been on the intensive and I've lived for 78 years now, I won't tell my age, but at least 78. Um, I have so often avoided answering any of those questions because I did not want to go where it took me. And one of the things that people need to understand as they're talking to someone else is sometimes you'll ask somebody something and the pain they feel at the moment of you asking is so deep that there's no way that they want to go there. There's no way they can go there right at that time. And so we can say to someone, "If would you like to tell me about this? Would you like to discuss this? Would you like to give me a call? Would you like to have a cup of coffee? Would you like for me to come see you sometime? Those kind of offers are much better than trying to, to get right to the issue because the issue may be much more painful than we're aware. Things that some people laugh about to me can be very, very disturbing because they carry uh, weight that is very difficult to bear. And although I've gotten rid of a lot of them, there's still some things there. Writing in for the book has caused some things to surface that I had not even thought about for a long time. But they surfaced, I acknowledge them, and I let them go. One of the things I've learned is that one of the best things that we can do is cry. And uh, men have permission to laugh. We can laugh at anything including stuff that we shouldn't be laughing at. But when it comes to tears, we've never given ourselves permission as a society, at least here in this country, and I think almost globally, that men should not cry. Tears come from the area in our head, which is very, very close to the neurotransmitters of our whole brain system. There are 30 or 40 neurotransmitters at any one time going around and around in the brain. And it's actually been demonstrated in some studies that these come out in the tears, that the greatest release of toxin is not by the liver, it's not necessarily by other methods of detoxifying, but the, the greatest source of toxins can be found in, in emotional tears, not the tears that come from peeling an onion, but the tears that come from pain. And as we let those tears flow, if we wanted to analyze them, and there's a whole book on this written, 
about the fact that these tears are loaded with toxins. It's a body's way of getting rid of things. So when a man has not been allowed to cry since he was a little boy, can you imagine the amount of built up toxins that are in his brain that could have been released? So I love to give men permission to cry. And I don't feel at all uncomfortable with anyone who tears up. It doesn't mean it has to be explored right that moment. It doesn't mean that we have to say anything. We just need to acknowledge that it's okay. It's a good thing. Let it be, let it happen. I, I don't know why I wanna share this, but I'd love to share a story. I was taking a three week class from a person who did some unusual forms of healing that were non-medical, non-traditional. And although I don't approve of a lot of what he did, I wanted to go study with him to see what was going on. So I went to Alaska in the winter and it was minus 30. So <laughs> I learned what coal was, uh, but it was minus 30 degrees. We had a class of about 12 people studying together for a week. And we had a lady with rheumatoid arthritis who was so severely disabled that she had to be carried in a wheelchair upstairs because there was no elevator and we were meeting on the second floor. And on the third week, on a Wednesday in the middle of this class, she began to weep almost uncontrollably. And the leader of the class said, don't do anything, just sit by her, put your arm around her and don't say a word, don't say a thing. She cried all day Wednesday, she cried all day Thursday, and she cried into the morning on Friday. Friday afternoon, she stood up and walked down the stairs by herself. There was so much pain pent up. I've never seen tears like this. But he was wise enough to say, let it be, let it be. We don't need to know why, just let it flow. And the rheumatoid arthritis, which was so crippling, could not handle that because she had released whatever it was that causing that. Now, to me, there's many areas to explore in medicine, but this is an exciting area to me that's not usually recognized very highly by those that I lived with in, in the profession because it's too, it's too fluffy. It's too out of, out of the realm of what we normally think and do. You can't put it in a computer really easily to say how many tears does it take to cure arthritis. Um, but it's an example of what I've seen. I've seen several of those examples, some in my own life. And so I, I have an understanding that there's a degree of healing beyond mm -hmm. what we in the traditional medicine understand or know. And we should embrace it. There are those who are embracing it and there have been a lot of good things written, but it's still not mainstream in thinking. And there's not a lot of money in, in tears. <laughs> there's a lot of money in drugs, but there's not a lot of money in tears. That's exactly what <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I had a lady come to me one time who, she had a, a problem, uh, called lichen sclerosis and atrophicus, which is a very debilitating disease of the vaginal area with scarring and, and pain and all kinds of things. It's kind of an autoimmune disease. She was a screenwriter in a major city, quite well known. She flew Seattle to see me because she read something that I had written one time in a little blurb on the internet. I was not an expert at all, but she thought that I was the expert. And uh, she flew in to see me in the morning. She was going to see me in the afternoon, and she had to fly out that night for a, a meeting. 
And then when she told me the, how she got there, I thought, I know nothing about what you're talking about other than what I read in the textbook. And that's not much because nobody thinks we can do anything. You know, it's not curable. There's nothing to do except use certain creams and live with it. Um, but somehow I knew that this was a visit that was not going to fit into the computer box that day. It was not going to go into the check off the 30 minute visit with the following diagnoses. She fortunately, and I don't think inadvertently, she was the last patient of the day. So I, I just let her talk and we talked and talked. We found we had a lot of common interest. And after about an hour, um, I had this question come up in my mind that I didn't know why I was asking, but I said, what happened to you six months before your disease started? And she started to weep and she says, my brother, who was the closest person in the world to me, was a firefighter in Chicago. He was in his mid thirties, loved life and was a good, good man. He was in a bar having a drink after work and someone pulled out a revolver and started to fire. He stepped in front of the man and he was killed. And as she said that, I knew deep down inside, this is the source of this disease. This is why she has this disease. This is how the body is handling this disease. So I said to her, do you ever think that maybe Bill's death was somehow related to your disease? She started to weep even more and she said, I have a sign on my bathroom mirror that says Bill's death and my disease are one and the same. So we talked about how to handle this. We talked about forgiveness of the person that killed him, not for that person, but for her peace of mind for her recognizing the life that had been lived by her brother and what it meant and all the good things that she could celebrate. And we shared all that kind of thing for a while. A few weeks later, I received a note. Thank you for the visit. All is well. Now, there's no money in that. And I certainly didn't get paid for two hours of visiting with this patient because the diagnosis didn't fit. There's no checkbox in the medic electronic medical record for the husband for the shooting of a brother and the disease onset. That doesn't have a place, but it should. And it's my hope that as we share more and more of openness among people of all ages, all preferences, all religions, as we more and more share together, we can find that there's a oneness in so many of these things that we deal with, that we're all connected as one. And that we're here to help one another, we're here to make light, not darkness. We're to heal, not destroy. And to be honest with ourselves and honest with others. And it's my desire with this time I have left to do as much as I can to get my message out because it's worked for me. One of the things that, that I've often thought was for years and until after the intensive journey for a fact, um, which was 2006, but for any number of years, Every time I spoke, I quoted, I could quote all kinds of authors, I could quote philosophers, I could quote poets, but it was always somebody else's idea and I was kind of explaining the idea. But I would think to myself, that's not you. That's just stuff you know, that's not, you're not that. And you don't understand that really, but people buy the idea that you can explain it. And so they listen and thank you and think, oh, that was great. It wasn't great at all. It was. It was BS, but it was my way of handling things was to be 
a quoter to be someone who found the source in other people. And I was telling my wife the other day, you know, it's very seldom that I speak anymore that I I need to quote anybody. I don't I don't need to quote anybody. There's what's there is there. It's me. And the authentic self feels so good. I must say the best feeling I have next to having found my Brenda again was to find out that living in truth and living in openness and living in authenticity is the most healthy, helpful, hopeful, joyful way to live. And I celebrate the fact that I was given enough time to do this, that I've reached a point in my life where I can do this. As we were, before we talked today, I thought, you know, I've had three near-death experiences in my life where, except for what really appeared to be a miraculous intervention, I would have died. And in all three times, I had the sense deep inside that I have a purpose for being here and my purpose was not yet finished and that I survived for that reason. You can call it God, you can call it the universe, you can call it whatever your name happens to be. The Old Testament teaches that God can't have a name anyway, that it would there's no name that would fit. So I don't care what you call him or her, but I do care that you look for that place in, in the inner sanctum of our soul where we can acknowledge that we are more than just flesh and blood. We're more than just chemistry. We're more than just heredity. There's something else that we need to be in tune with. And it's not all, it's just part of who we are. And it needs to be an important part, an equal part of what we, who we are. Part of what my wife teaches in her teaching of Hawaiian healing is the idea of balance and that we worship nature, we worship a creator, and we love and worship ourselves. By worshiping ourselves, it just means we take care of ourselves, we're good to ourselves. The mentor that I mentioned earlier who started me on my path to the intensive, every time I would talk to him as he left, as I left, he would say, be good to yourself. And I thought, I don't know what that means. What does he mean, be good to yourself? I had been trained not to be good to yourself, but to be good to others and uh, that self-love was kind of bad, taking care of yourself was not good, service was important. So I finally, after the intensive, understood for once what he really meant when he said, be good to yourself. I saw the self with a huge capital letter, the self I was created to be, the self I really am, the self that got squeezed down into the little box in the soul somewhere was not allowed to see daylight for a long time. That's the self that I am. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Robert. Such a beautiful story. And thank you for sharing so much tonight. Um, I, I cannot wait to read your chapter. I'm really excited for your message. Um, again, I just I just feel like you you have a beautiful way, and I'm so glad you were writing it now. You've got around to writing now. You have such a beautiful way of explaining and resonating and using your stories. I mean, so much of what you've just said has blown me away. I, I really feel that we are, so much of, of our illnesses are psychosomatic and connected to something else. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's recognizing all of it, isn't it, that we are, we're so much more than we feel we are. And actually we're so much more powerful than we feel we are. But your, your words about purpose were really, really profound. That's very much my work as a mentor. I work with purpose, with our Dharma, why are we here? Um, and I'm really blessed that you've come forward with your truth and your words 
Um, and I know Kumu Brenda is also writing as well, your beautiful wife and partner. Um, so I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your words tonight. I have been, you know, I have, we have spoken before, but I have just mesmerized um, listening to you again. I really, really appreciate it. I feel like because of your experiences as, as a medical doctor, as well as your life experience, you just have this incredible um, impact that you probably don't maybe even realize yet, but I hope you do, of, uh, of bringing those two worlds together, of spirituality, of science, of health, and, and, and all that is within us. Well, thank you, it's been a great joy to be here. And one of the things that I'm understanding in my own life is the journey as torturous as it has been, and as long as it's taken, really is the right time now for me to be speaking up. I was not ready back before some of these things occurred that I've discussed. And the same with my marriage, although it took 50 years after falling in love with Brenda to actually find that we were actually marrying. Uh, it need, we needed the 50 years to be ready for each other. And we were reunited, we were on the same path anyway. So it, it meant that we had we'd walked together and did not even know it. So there is a time and I think there's a tide for all seasons. And uh, I'm just excited to be part of this. And I, I love what you're doing. I admire what you're doing. And I so look forward to really understanding the stories of all those that are writing for you and with you. And to do something in this world that will bring change and bring some harmony and some light and some peace and some order to the chaos that we're now living in. Um, but there's a lot of good around us and it's happening all the time and it's happening here. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you, Robert. It's been an absolute pure, pure joy and pleasure to have you speaking tonight. Um, thank you so much to our viewers and our listeners. You will be able to read Robert's words very soon when the Being Fine uh, second edition is released. Um, we will let you know. Please join our Facebook group, Being Fine Book, um, because then you'll be notified of when the the second edition is coming out and Robert's words. And um, we, we are having lots more events as well, like live calls. So that's really exciting too. And, and yeah, just join our conversation. And if you haven't bought version one yet, then obviously do so. It's available on Kindle and in paperback. And um, you will soon be able to, as I say, read Robert's words too. So Robert, thank you so much for joining us from uh, Hawaii. Thank you for very much for inviting me and blessings and joy and peace to you. Thank uh, you. And, and to you too. Take care. Thanks very much for listening and watching. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye.